0: All right, tonight we're going to be in Exodus chapter 19. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to leave you at the foot of Mount Sinai, but that's just the way she goes. Tonight, as we're looking at at this chapter, there's an underlying theme here, and, and I'm hopeful I'll bring it out so that you see it clearly. The underlying theme is... The manner in which people of God approach God. And we're gonna see a contrast in how that was prescribed under the law, which is what this chapter in large part is about, and then how it works regarding us as people under grace. And so um, let's, we, we touched on the first opening verses last week and um, i'm just going to kind of summarize what we saw there uh, we see there in verse 1 of chapter 19 that in the third month after the children of israel had gone out of the land of egypt on the same day they came to the wilderness of sinai so now they're in that sinai peninsula area and um, it's believed that the the mount of god it's called Horeb, it's called sinai uh, scholars today believe it's one and the same with a mountain that's there called Jebel Musa which basically means the mountain of Moses in in, in um, Arabic and uh, it's kind of at the at kind of the point of the Sinai Peninsula between the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf, uh, the Gulf of Aqaba uh, and and so they it's taken them three months to get to that spot and we're going to find that over the next 57 chapters of the bible all the way from this point to numbers chapter 10 all of that deals with the year that they spent right there uh, at the mount of god getting the law and all that's going on there Um, and it it tells us there that moses in verse 3 went up to up to god and the lord called to him from the mountain, saying thus you shall say to the house of jacob and tell the children of israel so god has got a message that he wants Moses to bring to the children of Israel. And this message uh, is kind of outlined in verses 4, 5, and 6. He says, For you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now, what we're hearing here is that this time that they're gonna spend at the base of Mount Sinai is very, very important for their, their future. This is where God is basically establishing his relationship with them as their God and they as his people. This, as you'll recall, is the place where Moses... Initially met God at the burning bush when God gave him his commission you go to Egypt you go and implore on my behalf that Pharaoh let my people go and all that Exodus chapter 3 verse 12 we saw this the Lord said to him this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt you shall serve God on this mountain so they're back at that place the Lord is now laying out for them this is my plan for you this is where they find out that they, once again, God is establishing they are a special, called out people. He describes them as being a a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They, among all the nations in the world, all the peoples of the world that God could have selected, he chose them and his mission for them is is stated here very clearly that they are going to be a a nation of kings, a a kingdom of, of priests, a holy nation and that they will be they will be a special treasure to him if they keep his covenant and this is this is where we see that this covenant in terms of its blessings and cursings it's very conditional that the lord established that and we we would see this if we were going to get over to that that in um in the case of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, 9 and 30, we, we see the conditionality of that covenant. That here are all the blessings if you keep the covenant. Here are the curses that uh, will uh, visit upon you in the event that you go after false gods and the like. So he's establishing the beginning of that relationship with them. And, uh, and so Moses is going to declare this to the people. God also says there, I pointed this out last time as well in verse 4, that God expressed to them how he carefully protected them and guided them and in the imagery that he uses you see there in verse 4 he said you see what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself and I pointed out that that very same imagery is what the Lord uses in Revelation chapter 12 when he speaks about how the Lord is going to supernaturally guide and protect his people through the second half of the tribulation when virtually all hell is breaking loose on earth and the lord is going to lead them to a place of protection and provision uh, by his hand and that same imagery of being born on eagle's wings is what the lord is going to, to 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 use in that context now when he says that they are a special treasure to me above all people We know that God has a special called out people in in the nation Israel. God has, under the covenant of grace, another special called out people. And we are those people, the church. We we are not one and the same as Israel. We don't replace Israel. We are a, a special called out people under a different dispensation for a different purpose. But the one thing that's common between the first group of called out people, Israel, and the church is that we, too, are a special treasure uh, in God's eyes. And if you, if you uh, looked quickly at Ephesians chapter 1, in Ephesians chapter 1, you get a clear sense of how the Lord views us, his church, because of the way that he describes our redemption in Christ. In the third verse of Ephesians 1, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, that's the church, with every special, uh, spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And he goes on and on to describe how carefully he chose each member of the church from before the foundations of the earth and how he, he holds us as such a treasure to him. And this is where we have to understand that you know we were not called out by the Lord to be, as Peter describes it in 1 Peter, a royal priesthood, or as it's described in, in Revelation 1-6 as kings and priests. He didn't call us to that so that we could serve ourselves we were not called into the church by the lord so that ah good we've got fire insurance we've escaped the 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 calamity that would be due us we can now go on and live the way we want to live because we live under grace and therefore our 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 sins and the like don't matter no not at all Uh, grace is free but it's not cheap it was it was paid for with the precious blood of jesus christ And we are now called not only to our savior, Jesus Christ, but as somebody prayed in the room, I can't remember who it was earlier, we're also called under his lordship. And as being under his lordship, our existence is to serve him. Our existence is to magnify and glorify him. And that, again, is another common element between us as a called out people and Israel's a called out people. He didn't call them out as a people so that they could live however they want and pursue whatever god's idols or the like that they want. No, he called them out to be priests of of his dominion kings as in a royal royalty in his dominion to serve him and to glorify him. And so That's kind of what the Lord is laying out for them as they now get ready to receive the law at the base of this mountain. So now, picking up in verse seven for tonight, we see there that Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all the words which the Lord commanded him. So that would be the first six verses we just summarized. Moses is calling the elders together, and obviously this is a way in which he could communicate with all the people Because the sheer numbers of people means he's got to tell a smaller select group. And then they obviously would would spread the word. And so uh, he calls the elders. He tells them all the words which the Lord commanded. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people of the Lord. Now here we see the first instance where the people are are professing, confessing allegiance to the Lord. The Lord is giving them direction and they are basically saying yes and amen. And we'll see over the course of uh, the future for the the nation Israel that there are several key times when they are faced with that kind of of decision, right? Uh, A famous one is in Joshua's farewell address, which you find in Joshua chapters 23 and 4, where... In that particular section of scripture, the Lord kind of rehearses back to Joshua and through Joshua to the people, here's all the things that I've done for you, in you, with you. Um, Things that I've done that were supernatural victories and battles like Jericho and and others and and all of the ways in which he coddled them, protected them, guided them, provided for them. And, uh, and, And then... As as he's doing this, uh, as the Lord is doing this through Joshua, he is basically, once again, providing them with a decision point. Uh, and, And it's really expressed well in verses 14 and 15 of Joshua 24. After laying out all these wonderful things that the Lord did on their behalf or through them to glorify his name, we read in verse 14 of Joshua 24, Now, therefore... Fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And this, this is an off-quoted um, passage, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A lot of people have it as a nice little plaque in their kitchen or something. And I think it's apropos to have that kind of tattooed somewhere in your life because we face that decision every day. You know, we may not worship Baal, gods called Baal or Asheroth or, or Molech or anything like that, but we can find ourselves worshiping the gods of materialism, money, pride, power, prestige. And these kind of things get in our way of worshiping the one and true God. And so we face these decisions every day. And as we do, we have to ask ourselves, um, if we're not going to serve the Lord today, why not? What would we we put in his place? Uh, That's why I love the way Joshua uh, poses the question. If you think it would be evil to serve the lord you know, you can go after whatever you're going after but i want you to know that as for me having thought this through having had a ringside seat to serving the lord um our me and my house we will serve the lord and so this is a very important concept of of facing each day surrender surrendering day by day to the lordship of jesus christ um, and and here in verse 8 the people are going to giving the right answer we're going to serve the Lord um, we'll see that they are they are in a position to have to give that answer again in Exodus chapter 24 after the law is actually given after Moses gets the 10 commandments and the like and Moses or uh, in the first eight cha- verses of Exodus 24 they will have that opportunity once again having heard the law now you know they're they're kind of agreeing in this chapter to the concept of the Lord is going to give us commands and instructions and yay we're going to follow the Lord well by the time you get to chapter 24 they're actually hearing what it is and there they will have another opportunity to assent to uh, obeying the Lord and so um, after having brought the the word back to the people uh, Moses told the words of the people to the Lord verse 10 then the Lord said to Moses go to the people And consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people and washed their, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Now, let's... Let's try and understand what's, <laughs> what's being told here. Um, first of all, this idea of consecration. It means to separate oneself from things that are unclean, especially anything that would contaminate one's relationship with a perfect God. It carries with it the idea, the connotation of sanctification, holiness, purity. This is where we get a clear understanding A clear appreciation for the holiness of God, and for the unworthiness of human beings who have been, who have basically been defiled by sin, you know, from the original sin forward to this point and into the future until the Lord uh, brings a close to this 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 current time. Uh, Every human being who is born into the world is born with a sin nature. We know that nature can be. Uh, redeemed if we give our lives to jesus christ but that nature is is resident there and that nature cannot cannot have fellowship with god this is why without receiving jesus christ as your lord and savior you are destined for spiritual death eternal separation from god and we get a clear picture here of how god views that status between man and god between an unredeemed human being and god And even that the Lord is going to meet Moses on this mountain. He does not even want these people to be on the same mountain where he is. And he is telling them very clearly that even to be gathered at the base of the mountain. They have to consecrate themselves. Which means they have to set themselves apart for the the, the limited fellowship that they are going to have with God, that they could even be mere spectators while their intermediary, Moses, who is the intermediary of this old covenant, is going to meet with God. And so what the Lord is prescribing here is, first of all, he's telling them set bounds. I don't know whether it was actual physical boundaries or ways in which the area was marked so that people would know you can go to this point, but you can't go beyond that point. On pain of death, so defiled would a person be who would who would uh, cross that boundary and get too close to the holy God that their manner of death would would be anything but other people laying their hands upon that person because they would be defiled, so they would have to either be shot with arrows or stoned because they would be that defiled that 's the way the Lord sees it. He then would tell them that. Uh, they must wash their clothes notice that something else is added by moses in verse uh, 15 he tells the men do not come near your wives now there's nowhere in scripture where the bible teaches that sex within the bounds of marriage is evil or dirty or or in any way uh, offending god quite the opposite Sex within the marital uh, boundaries is holy, pure. It is a gift from God. It is pleasing in the sight of God. So you might say, well, then why in this case would they be told uh, to abstain from any conjugal relationship with their wives? And I believe it's more in the nature of a fast. Like, for example, when we want to focus ourselves on praying for something. Very often, Christians will say, let's fast and pray. Is there anything in he- inherently evil about food? Depends on what kind of food. No. There's, there's nothing inherently evil about food. You, you abstain from partaking of it as a means of focusing your entire being on the Lord. This, this is why people fast and pray. That's why it's in, in places in the Bible, it's prescribed as a way to to approach the Lord when you're praying. For example, the Lord said that certain kinds of, of demons can only be cast out through fasting and prayer. Um, equally, uh, much like with food, uh, having relations with, with your spouse is fulfilling a basic physical and emotional and even spiritual need that we have. And so as a means of focusing them on this consecration, the Lord is saying through Moses that for this time, as they approach that third day, which we'll talk about in a second here, that they are to lay that aside and to concentrate on what they are about to experience, which is to be in the presence of the Lord meeting with their intermediary. And so this... Again, all of this this, uh, seriousness around this encounter that they're going to have from a distance underscores the way in which God views sin and the way in which he abhors sin in his presence. Now, I want to contrast that with what we as Christians on the other side of the cross the way in which we are instructed or the way in which we are granted access to God and for that if you would just turn quickly to your in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10 and there's a lot about this passage we're reading tonight that the book of Hebrews provides commentary in terms of understanding both what we're reading here and how it contrast with what the lord has done through the sacrifice of his son jesus christ if you look at beginning in verse 19 of hebrews 10 we read this therefore brethren having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of jesus stop right there you didn't see the word bold anywhere near what we just read in exodus chapter 19 right there was nothing boldness about it you were coming consecrated in clean clothes focused on the lord and you were going to be scared out of your mind as we'll see when we get back to uh, chapter 19 here we are told that having boldness to enter the holiest this is the place because when he uses that term the holiest he's referring in temple language, to the inner sanctum, to the place where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt over the mercy seat in that Holy of Holies. And he is, he is literally using that imagery to say, you, Christian, as you enter that place where the Lord dwells and you enter with boldness, you, uh, you have entry because of the blood of Jesus. And then he describes it in verse 20, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us. See, in in Exodus chapter 19, the people were told to consecrate themselves. And the very fact that they could not even touch the mountain tells you that that consecration, which was the best they could muster, was not good enough to be in the presence of the Lord. But here we read that, that we enter by a new and living way which Jesus consecrated for us. In other words, that imputed righteousness that we get from him gives us standing, gives us entry through a new and living way, th- through the veil that is his flesh, again, using temple imagery, because there was a very thick, high veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Let us draw near. oh and having a high priest over the house of God, that's verse 21, let us draw near. Let us draw near the opposite of what the children of Israel were instructed. They couldn't draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, there's the washing. They were, they were advised in Exodus 19 to physically wash, and yet it was not efficacious to get them literally with God. But here we have our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful so this this is this is the contrast this is what you see in exodus chapter 19 is establishing that access to god without the savior it's limited very limited Uh, Once the law is given, the Levitical law is given, that access will be provided to one man on one day of the year. And only after bringing blood from imperfect sacrifices that are sufficient to cover sin for a time, but not to take it away. And so what we see here is, is a contrast of limited access in fear and trembling versus open access through which we can boldly enter because a new and living way has been opened up by the renting of the veil of the flesh of the perfect savior, the perfect sacrifice. And so you see this contrast of access to God under the old covenant versus access to God in the new covenant. Interesting too that literally the Lord told him you need, you shall set bounds, boundaries, verse 12. For the people all around. Boundaries are something that us humans very often don't like to accept readily. But desperately need. Desperately need. Under the old covenant, everywhere you looked was a boundary. And some of these boundaries were deeply offensive to people who are on the outside of the Jewish faith looking in. Today, even in modern Christianity there are certain boundaries that are set. And those boundaries are typically set according to the order that God has established in his word. couple of examples. God created a man and woman. Marriage between man and woman. Uh, I do not permit a woman to teach. Elders, deacon, well, elders, at least, bishops, pastors, an office described literally... In the Bible, as an office to be occupied by a man. Southern Baptist Convention last week was all in a turmoil because they were they were voting on that very issue. At issue was a couple of churches that they they were voting on whether to be expelled from the from the convention because they had named female pastors. I actually, heard a show yesterday that was highly critical of the vote because of ninety percent of the people who voted said, "Nope, we're holding on to Scripture." It's only for men those churches should, not be, should be disfellowshipped. This is a boundary. And there are plenty of women pastors around the nation who are deeply offended because they believe that this boundary says that they're not qualified. And here's what we have to understand when we're dealing with God, because he's sovereign. Amen. He's the God of the universe. His word is true, all of it. Obedience is more important than people's feelings. It's hard to say it that way because it seems in our day and age, somebody's feelings are the most valuable, highest order of things that should change the course of the entire world because someone was offended. When we're dealing with God, unfortunately or fortunately, I, in my view, fortunately, our feelings don't matter because our feelings are based upon our carnal selves and very often the things that offend us are really offending our flesh and our flesh nature is saying that hurt me i'm offended and god is saying i don't care because what i the boundaries i set are for your good and my glory and those are more important than your feelings and this is, you know, this is the way the Lord sets it up here. It's like you set boundaries, and somebody says, "Well, why can't I go there?" That that means that I'm not free. I can go, I can go over that line because I'm curious and I'm also bold. Well, that's the wrong covenant to be bold under, okay? Because the Lord said very quickly what would happen. So He also talks about He's setting them up, verse eleven. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And obviously your ears probably perked up when you see third day, hmm, that sounds significant. And it is. Uh, Again, uh, the Lord uses patterns. There's a whole study area about how numbers work in scripture. And um, this is one of those places where we'll see a parallel because it's the third day of, of, of Jesus' encounter with the cross and then the resurrection, it's that third day when, when the way is opened up, right? And, and so we'll see, that, we'll see that connection in a moment here. So we carry on verse 16. Then it came to pass on the third day, there it is, in the morning, much like Jesus' resurrection, that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud. So that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now, imagine this. You go to an Ohio State, the Ohio State football game, the Ohio State University football game. i got to get this right. And, you know, they got awesome band on the field. And there's a whole lot of trumpets and other horns. And when they are letting it go, I'm sure that, especially if you're an Ohio State fan, the hair rises on the back of your neck. I mean, this, this is why trumpets have been used for centuries, for millennia, as a means of, of directing and inspiring troops. Because nothing like a trumpet can cut through the din of just everyday life and really grab your attention. And so you're, you're up there in that stadium that seats 100,000 people or whatever, and those trumpets start playing and, and, and it moves you. Now imagine that those trumpets are coming not anywhere on the earth. It's not in front of you. It's not over to your left, not over to your right. It's literally coming from heaven. And as we see in this passage, the trumpet was very loud. A trumpet coming from heaven that's very loud. That would not only rise the hair on your your neck, but if you didn't have hair, you'd probably grow some. (laughs) Because... The sound of anything that's happening in heaven, in my view, is going to blow our minds. And so now this, this heavenly call, this heavenly uh, summons is coming to earth. And the people who are sitting there or standing there, they're trembling because in that moment that they start to hear that, that trumpet blow, they realize, okay, I may not be on that mountain, but I am, in the, I am in the presence of the Almighty. And much like you see, anybody who encounters the Almighty, whether it's Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter one, Isaiah and Isaiah chapter six, John and Revelation chapter one, when they get in touch with the heavenlies, they are a bowl of quivering jelly woe is me i'm a man of unclean lips and they're saying we are a people of unclean lips and they are trembling they're shaking in their boots they could probably feel it taste it smell it see it all of it's coming because there, in in verse 16 it says that there were thunderings and lightning and thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud all the people who were in the camp trembled and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain and that that uh, mount that I mentioned earlier that 's at the base of the point of Mount Sinai, it has in front of it a plain that 's about two and a half miles long and a half a mile wide. It is believed if that is indeed the site of of this actual scene, that the people were assembled on that plain, so they 're all standing there, shaking in their boots, and they 're witnessing. This presence of God coming down upon the mountain. And and, and the indicia of God's presence was the thunderings, the lightning, the thick cloud, and this blaring trumpet. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke. Now, if it's the mountain I mentioned, that's a 7,500 foot tall peak, and it's completely enveloped in smoke. Because the Lord descended upon it in fire. So we got fire and smoke. It's smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Now, my money is on the fact that when Moses spoke, he said, Lord, we are absolutely terrified. Can you turn that trumpet down a bit? <laughs> it's, it's, it's freaking out the people. They, there may not be anybody left alive from just the sheer fright of, uh, of what they are going through. And so we, we read there that God answered him by voice. So now it's not just thumber, thundering. And it's not just the trumpet. It's the voice of God. And we don't know uh, whether the people that were there as well heard the voice of God. But I think they were already pretty convinced that he had arrived. Verse 20, then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai and on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Now, on the one hand, I could say, Moses had a lot of courage to go up that mountain. On the other hand, what else could he do? You mean if the Lord said, come up here, you'd say, I can't. I'm too afraid. No, I don't think so. But he went up and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. Now here's where we have to understand something. We would think that the people gathered on that plane who have just seen this, this amazing arrival, you talk about a red carpet arrival, this blows anything anybody's ever experienced on earth away. The Lord is arriving at this mountain. He's enveloped it in fire and smoke. The whole ground is shaking. Thunder is rumbling. A trumpet that is absolutely reaching every molecule of their being as being blown And the first thing the Lord tells Moses is go back down and warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. Now you'd say, Lord, I doubt anybody would do that. They're freaked out. They know you're here. That ought to be enough to, 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 to make them straight for the rest of their lives. No, no. In fact, while Moses will ultimately be up on that mountain, receiving the commandments of the lord these very same people who are terrified to be in the presence of the lord will be having an orgy dancing around a fire worshiping a golden calf that they attribute their escape from egypt to and that if you're still not convinced that we have a sin nature should clinch it for you hey these are the people who saw the 10 plagues in egypt that finally caused the most powerful man in the world to relent and let them go, who guided them through a a passage that was not the obvious one, only to put their backs against the Red Sea so that God could show them his glory yet again, part the sea, bring them through it, then bring the sea down upon their enemy, then bring them through a battle with the uh, uh, Amalekites and win, then provide food from heaven in the form of manna, then issue forth water from a rock, now give them a light show the likes of which they've never seen and still they'll be unfaithful and i hate to think about it but probably a lot of us would be not not unfaithful because we're believers now the holy spirit indwells us but people of this century seeing all that this is why we often say goodness gracious when the rapture happens how will anybody on earth deny the lord then well, hold on to your seats because the world is already being prepared by the enemy to have explanation for where all these people disappear to. Think about it. Why is it all of a sudden we, we, we're constantly hearing about not just whack job people saying that there's UFOs, government agencies, military branches, not only saying that they've seen these things, but putting the videos on mass media. And now the latest thing that's come out is that they've actually got ships that have crashed. And there's even one report that they found an alien in one of those ships. Now, maybe that's all nonsense, but the very fact that it's being fed to the public through what most people would consider credible sources tells us that the enemy is working double time so that at the point at which... The rapture does happen. People say, well, you know, we've been warning those people. They've been an impediment to the progression of humanity on the earth. And finally, the aliens who are our friends took them out. People will not come to the Lord because the nature that they have will preclude it. And unless the Lord would call any of us, none of us would have come. And so he, he... God says, you better go back down and tell these people one more time, do not approach this mountain. He says in verse 22, also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate. Moses said, "Don't, Lord, I I heard you the first time, and, and I took precaution, and I set boundaries around, and I told them, and they said yes and amen, and you know what God says? Uh, he says there, uh, then the Lord said to him, away, get down and then come up and you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. The Lord is saying, yeah, 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 sure, Moses. Go down and do what I told you. I know these people better than you do. So Moses went down to the people and he spoke to them. Now, this Mount Sinai experience Later in the writings of scripture, the writer of Hebrews will use Mount Sinai as a symbol of this covenant that we're seeing about to be formed here a covenant of law, a conditional covenant of follow this, you're blessed, break this, you're cursed, versus another mount, Mount Zion. And I want you to turn once again to Hebrews, because I want to show you this. Men, We recently studied this, and, um, and so I know you're all experts on this. But in, Mo- in Moses, in Hebrew chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, between verses 18 and 24, watch how the writer of Hebrews commentates on what we've just seen as this, this happening at the base of Mount uh, um, Sinai. And he's contrasting here. And the book of Hebrews is a book of contrast that says, oh, it's written to Jewish, Jewish believers. And, and the writer is, is showing them on all of the key tenets of their previous faith, of the Jewish faith. He's saying, look, here's all the things about your previous faith that were good. They, they, they were given to us by the Lord because it pointed the way. But here's all the things that are better. And in establishing the better covenant under Jesus, he uses these two mountains to make the contrast. So picking up in verse 18 of Hebrews 12, this is what he writes. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched that, and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. So here we're basically being told that they did hear the word of God. So, that, so they did hear when God started speaking. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. That's a quote right out of where we just were. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. That's probably what he told the Lord when he spoke after the trumpet. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. What the writer of Hebrews is showing us here, he's he's bringing into focus our salvation comes because we gather at Mount Zion, figuratively. The covenant that the Jewish people were under, they were gathered at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai speaks of fear and terror. He says that right in this passage in Hebrews. Zion speaks of love and forgiveness. Sinai, you found in the dry desert. Zion, Mount Zion, the city of the living God. Sinai, with all its fear and power, is earthly. But Mount Zion, we come to the heavenly and the spiritual. In Mount Sinai, only Moses could come and meet God. So he was the mediator there. In Zion, there is an innumerable company, a general assembly of, of angels and saints, that we are all able to come on our own behalf because of this new and living way that's been opened. Sinai was characterized by guilty men who stood before it in fear. Zion took, those, took people and made them just and perfect. Just in terms of being justified, okay? Declared righteous. With Mount Sinai, Moses was the mediator. Only he could go between the people and God. But in Mount Zion, Jesus is the mediator. He is our great high priest. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Sinai puts forth an old covenant that's ratified by the blood of animals. Mount Zion has a new covenant ratified by the blood of God's son, Jesus. Sinai was all about barriers and exclusions. Zion is about invitation. All who will may come Sinai is about law Zion is about grace and so this contrast it shows us very clearly the different aspects of access to god under the two covenants the first covenant was very necessary because we had to understand the holiness of god and the depravity of man this is why i say if you study the bible even a little bit you'll learn at least two things the holiness of God, the depravity of ourselves. We learn who he is. We learn who we are. And you cry out for a savior. That's why my hope for the church of the future, this church, is that more people are here on Wednesday nights for Old Testament study. Because when you study the Old Testament, you understand things like this. You understand the need for a savior. And there are some things that Mount uh, Mount Sinai teaches us that are still applicable, that are still good to know and live by. First of all, we, like those people gathered at the the base of the mountain, we have to receive God's word. Had they not been given God's word that you can't come here, they all would have perished. We must, like they must have, we must be set apart. They were set apart by washing their clothes, by doing certain things to consecrate themselves, and still their access was denied. We are set apart when we receive Jesus Christ. And he places upon us the seal of the Holy Spirit, which is God's purchase price guarantee of our eternal separation from the world and and, and union with Christ. Just as they needed to be, we need to be cleansed. We're cleansed by the the washing of the water of the word and the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We did not have access until the third day. The third day being the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that opened the way for us. We, like they, have to respect God's boundaries. What are those boundaries? Just like what we talked about some minutes ago. There are things that the Lord tells us in the scripture that are expressions of the order that he has set for humanity. There are even further things that God explains in scripture that is order Established for his church, of which we are a part, much like they were called to restrain from the flesh don't have relations with your spouses. We are also called to restrain our flesh. We are called to restrain our flesh, not to hold on to our salvation or to earn it, but to glorify the one who has given it to us. And we must never forget that we come before a holy God. You know, in our day and age of things being so casual, I mean, I still remember the days where every man wore a full suit to work every day in, in the work that I did. There was no casual Fridays. There was no business casual. There was no sport coat and slacks. It was a full suit every day. People were just more formal. And we know that, in a lot of the greater church, this church would be one of those churches, things have gotten less formal in terms of dress. To me, that's just one little indicia of, okay, how do we view the one that we come on a Sunday or a Wednesday night to approach? How do we, I'm not saying that clothes, the, the, the way in which you dress is definitively exp- explaining the way in which you come to the Lord. I am saying, however, that we must, we must consider that. When we come on a Sunday, what do we think is going to happen here? Is this going to be just, hey, all my friends are there. I love to see my friends. That's a wonderful, laudable thing. But that should not be the reason why we come. Um, do you pick a church because it's the closest one to your house? Or do you pick a church because that particular one who happens to be 45 minutes from my house is where I have a real encounter with a holy God? And so we have to never lose sight of the holiness of the one that we worship and the the unspeakable privilege that we have that the way has been opened up so that we can be in his presence. And that's the thing I have to keep reminding myself of. You know, we, we, we are called to pray without ceasing, And I I teach people in prayer. We actually were looking at it last night with the men's Bible study about prayer. We were all about prayer the whole night. And it's great to speak openly, freely with God, but never irreverently. We should never be speaking to God like he's just one of the guys. He is the king. He's the God Almighty. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the lover of our souls. He's the redeemer of our souls. He's our friend, our brother, our father, our king. And we can never forget that. That's all I have to say about that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this word. And we thank you, God, for um, all that you show us through the Old Testament scriptures, Lord. Just how it rounds out our understanding of you, God. And how you are At the same time, righteous and full of justice, and yet loving and full of mercy and grace. What a spectacular relationship you have opened for us that we could know such a one, and that he could be our creator and still be our friend, that he could be the king of heaven and earth and all the universe and yet be our brother, that he could grant us eternal life through the death of his only son. We are just moved beyond words, Lord, when we think of all the things that you mean and all the things that you've done for us. And so, Father, Lord, I pray, I pray over this church, Lord, as it moves forward in what, as best we could discern, the manner in which you have guided it. I pray, Lord, that more hearts would be moved to know you more, to love you more dearly, Lord, to be drawn to you, and to desire one thing and one thing only, to know you more, to serve you better. Thank you, God, for the time you've given me, the privilege you've given me and Michelle to lead this church for the time that we had. And Lord, we just pray that you would continue to bless it through Vince and Christina, Lord. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. (laughs) Okay, God bless you.